When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. People of Western Europe. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe. We're on board the car ferry Normandy out of Rosslare, heading for the coast of France in relative comfort and safety. But 60 years ago, on the 5th of June, 1944, perhaps up to a million young men, thousands of them Irish, were waiting on the coast of England, stomachs knotted with tension, pulses racing, for the start of Operation Overlord. On the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, the invasion of Europe began. Because the Allies used a very tight weather window. The Germans weren't expecting the invasion, not in Normandy, not in Calais, not anywhere at that time. They thought the weather had made them impregnable, but it wasn't to be, and there was an extraordinary lapse in German intelligence. They didn't know that the invasion was taking place until the German sentries woke up on the morning of June the 6th to see the biggest invasion fleet ever assembled, and then the bombardment started. Andre Einz saw the first German uniforms walking the streets of his native Caen, the administrative capital of Normandy. The screw of repression turned slowly. He was recruited to a resistance cell by a priest, but the Gestapo were effective. 2,500 resistance members in his area were arrested, tortured and killed. 86 of them, many close to young Einz, were detained just two weeks before the invasion. On the morning of that invasion... They were dragged out into a prison yard and killed. Einz survived, and after years of sabotage and intelligence gathering, eagerly awaited news of the impending invasion. Nobody was told where it would take place except wrong places. And the Germans were also fooled by fortitude. In April and May '44, they announced in our newspapers at least three times the date of the landings. 
which was wrong, of course. So they looked like fools after that. And after uh, the second half of May, and of course less in June, they never mentioned that anymore. So we were told, of course, on the 1st of May uh, to, uh, to be prepared for action. And there was a message for each a different region of France, which was different, which was uh, called the warning, and the leaders had to prepare plans, the general order being, uh, you, when you hear those uh, messages, uh, you must uh, uh, hamper all German means of communication as much as you can for the next 10 hours. And those uh, main three sentences were heard on the evening of the 5th I still remember them clearly there was one first the warning on the 1st of June was for this part of France uh, l'heure I'll say it in French du combat viendra the time of the fight will come By 1944, it's estimated that 165,000 young citizens of ERA had joined the British Armed Forces. There were thousands too in the US Army. One veteran estimates that 66,000 Irish men in British uniforms fought in Normandy. One of them is now called Brother Columbanus, a Franciscan friar. But then he was Sean Deegan from Usher's Island in Dublin, already a veteran of Bomber Command on special duties issued with a Harley-Davidson motorcycle and instructions to track down crashed aircraft, identify the dead and note any parts of the aircraft worth salvaging. They landed him on the Normandy beaches behind the main force. But how did the journey from Usher's Island to France begin? Uh, my motivation was entirely adventure. I, when the war broke out, I was a senior scout. I was into scouting, I was into all that sort of life outdoor life and adventure. <clears throat> I come from a, an unusual background in the sense that my father went off in the First World War with his two brothers and he was lucky to be wounded, survived. He left his two brothers out there. And like uh, most of the stories, he was very reluctant to talk about it. The only thing, we had photographs of the brothers and if I got him going in the photographs, he'd tell us all. Now, I was born, you see, just after the Civil War and um, my heroes were the, civil, were the IRA and the people who, Dan Breen, my fight for Irish freedom. And oh, I was a Christian brother uh, student, so our teachers were all uh, re Republican. I, I know all the Republican songs. For our day off, we were taken out to the mountains and we were on manoeuvres, literally with the lads, uh, rehearsing the battles that they'd done. So my whole background was like that in, the, in that, in one sense, because my mother, Lord Rester, her two brothers, one of them had been killed in 1916, Republican. The other guy fled the country, managed to escape, ended up in Canada. So I was brought up in that background of militarism. And most of us were in Dublin, hearing stories and knowing this and the adventure. And when the war broke out, we thought that was brilliant. You know, those few battles going on and wars, a lot of propaganda. But however, to make a long story longer, as they say, I decided I was going to join the Irish Army with three of my pals because the, the emergency was started. They were clamouring for people to join. And we went up 
in the early 40s, it would be a 40, maybe 41, up to uh, Portobello Barracks to join the Irish Army. And uh, my whole idea was to try and get into the Air Corps. I was mad on aeroplanes. I'd been to an air display up in the Phoenix Park and I fell in there with aeroplanes. And I remember the poor officer who was, who was interviewing them. We had a big queue. They were queuing to join the Irish Army at that time. I was queues outside the barracks. We took our place and went in. And he interviewed me and he said, well, of course, he didn't believe me for a start off that I was, as I, I was telling him, I was 18. And he says, no, you're not even 17. I'm young looking now, I suppose, from over 80. So, And he says, um, besides, he says, uh, you're too skinny. He says, you're too, you're too skinny altogether. Go home, he says, go back in about a year. Feed yourself up and back in again and we'll talk to you again. Out. And I was out the door and I was disgusted. And um, my two pals got in. And here was I sent home with my tail between my legs. But I heard a few through the grapevine system, I heard a, a few months afterwards that the, 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 the RAF were looking for guys and I didn't mind you being skinny or they didn't mind you. Your Probably age. helped. <laughs> so, they said, so I wrote away to the British Embassy and lo and behold they sent me on. Okay, they done a little bit of vetting of you, all right, I know this, you're told about this. And when I, after a week or two, I got a letter to say, report to the Eamon Street station, and, and you'll be met at Gore Wood, and wear your old clothes, and you'll, if you'll blah, blah, blah. And that's what happened. The Irish government of the day issued only 771 permits for men of military age to leave the state during the emergency. But they poured over the border to the recruiting offices of Belfast, or on to Scotland or England. They were scattered across every branch and every regiment of the British forces. Tom Meehan was just another young unemployed Dubliner at the outbreak of war. There was no jobs and I uh, had listened to the elder, elderly people then who had been in the First World War and we thought it was great excitement and uh, we said we'd took me chances. So uh, why, we never, why we never joined our own army, I'll never know. I'll never answer, be able to answer that one at all. Well, how did you actually go about joining up? I just... Uh, Begged and borrowed up the fire to Belfast. My mother was prepared to give us a meal we go to her. And uh, that's what happened. And we went to Clifton Street in Belfast and in the recruiting office. Did you have any choice of regiment or which branch of the army? Yeah, I had. But that, that was another thing. I, I knew nothing about that whatsoever. And uh, only going up in the train, people were talking. But a lot of other people were going, of course, not just me. And uh, they were talking about joining the, the East Surreys. Now, why or how the East Surreys, or who they were, I didn't know, or what they were. So, joined the East Surreys. And then, for some reason or other, when we got across to England, we were transferred to the West Kents. Subsequent to that, uh, a bloke came along, and he was looking for volunteers for the Airborne Division. This was brand new now. This was a brand new division of it's the... It's a brand new division, British exactly. Army. That's correct, yes. And uh, when we arrived... In uh, Newbury, the race course, uh, it was the Royal Ulster Rifles. We could have joined that in, Belf- in, in Belfast when we joined up first. And was this to train as a paratrooper or as a glider-borne soldier? Gl- a glider-borne troops. Yeah, we thought we thought it was the paratroops, but when they did that, when he did explain to us that it was airborne, he didn't say he didn't uh, define between between glider and paratroop and parachute. Critical to the success of the invasion was an attack on a series of bridges, the best known, codenamed Pegasus Bridge. The target of airborne troops, a huge proportion of which were drawn from this island. Mark Worthington is a military historian attached to senior guide to the museum at Pegasus Bridge. 
What was so important that the success of an entire invasion swung on the taking of that bridge and the destruction of others? Taking the bridges, they did prevent the German forces coming across the Orne and the canal, but the principal reason was to allow the reinforcements coming up from the beach and the heavy weapons, the tanks and guns, to cross because 6th Airborne Division was dropped to the east of the Orne and the canal. Tell me the story, the chronology of it. What time did they land? The gliders, they were glider-borne troops involved in the taking of the bridges, of course. They landed at 16, 17 and 18 minutes past midnight on the night of the 5th of June, that is the morning of the 6th of June, seven hours before the troops came ashore uh, onto the beaches. How many men? 180 men. Just? Transported in six horser gliders. In each one there were 30 men, 28 troops, fully equipped, and the two pilots. Did all the, the gliders get down safely? Five landed near the two bridges, three of them near Pegasus Bridge. One of them within 50 yards? 47 yards. My goodness. Precisely. The troops measured the distance on the 8th of June, 1944. What size was the German garrison here? Uh, There were 11 troops garrisoned next to the bridge. Nine of them were sleeping in a bunker next to the bridge when the British arrived. Two of them were on the bridge. See, I talked to one of the veterans of that engagement, and he described it as silent killing. Yes. Well, the nine troops in the bunker were, were killed by the British. They went down and put them out of action. They were still asleep in the, in the bunker. With a knife? Yeah, yeah, quite. Pretty, pretty horrific stuff, really. Yes, but these men were trained to do that. That's, that That's was fine. the job. Yes, quite. When you hit the ground, what were your orders then? What did you do? Get out. I get onto the ground. Get out of that loiter as fast as you could. Because, it, if you can understand, it was stationary then, and a machine gunner with any sort of shot at all could have killed a lot of us, because the, 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 the glider wouldn't save you. And the glider was only, what, bits of wood and fabric? Yeah, that's all. Matchwood. So you, you hit the ground. Yes. What was your weapon? Oh, a rifle. Oh, your... the best man of the lot. Oh, God, I... Uh, the sniper was good at, get, at picking out the machine gunners, and the revolver... Wouldn't for, wouldn't do a hundred yards. So, Sten gun too short range as well. Yes, and the Bren gun too heavy, for carrying around. Well, it wasn't. They got used to us. Hmm. I was, uh, I was second to to a, a machine gunner, who unfortunately was killed at my feet. And the first attack was he a man you knew well? I did. I knew him well. Sammy Glass by name. He was a Belfast chap. And in my opinion, for what it's worth, he would have been Northern Ireland's goalkeeper. Really? He would. He was that good. What age were you at this stage? Twenty. Twenty? I was 16 and 10 months when I joined up. And then 20 when I got into action. How many of your friends did you see die? Did I see? How many of them? Well, you didn't get time to see them dying. You heard them screaming with pain or... Some of them calling out for their mammies or their girlfriends or whatever. But you weren't allowed to pick them up because you had to get out. We, when we did charge the little place called St. Hannery in, uh, they were there waiting for us. And then we got the order to get back because uh, it was no use. We, we, we were over, overrun. So and, what, what uh, happened then? That you, you ran up, the, the German machine gunners would have opened uh, up? Yes, uh, they'd all, all sorts, yes. All sorts of heavy machinery, machine guns. Yes, I, I, I don't understand how we weren't all wiped out. Again, I repeat myself for what it's worth. Uh, 
when we got back to Langabal, where we landed originally, we were told to get, get into the ground, dig in. Now, why did he allow us to dig in? After all, he had all the machinery there to blast us off the face of dirt. But he gave it to us when we got into the ground, which was comparatively safe. This was the German, the, the German general, obviously in charge yeah, of the somebody, defense. Somebody slipped up, all right. Thank God. They let you. They let you dig in. Yes, they let us dig in. And that was a fatal mistake. In my opinion, yes. At first, it was thousands of planes. We didn't know why they were there, except that there were some bombings, but far away, and we couldn't quite determine where it was, and we had not guessed that they were, in fact, dropping something like 10,000 parachutists. And after 2 o'clock, it was uh, more bombing. At half past 3 in the morning, it was rather terrific as far as bombing was concerned but it has even made worse with the noise of uh, from the navy navy shells make a terrific noise it even frightened the germans to death and by half past four it was obvious from the noise heard towards the north and the the sky which was a red glow that it was taking place on our shore and no, that we're was talking thousands of ships well, I never saw them that day, but uh, it, it, it was indeed it was so obvious that uh, it was taking place here. It was a real surprise because we had been told almost the day, the, day, the time, since we had been told to uh, create sabotage for 10 hours after the signal, but we had never been told it would be here in Normandy. Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe. This beach was codenamed Sword. It's the northernmost part of that strip of beaches, codenamed Sword, Juno, Gold, and further on down Omaha and Utah, separated by Amarones, where the artificial harbor was towed in. Early in the morning of June the 6th, 1944, the German sentries woke up to a terrifying sight. The sea, as far as they could observe, was packed with warships, and not German ones. At 7.20, 4th Commando went in here at Wiestram. That included 170 specially trained Free French troops. Their objective, to take the huge stone blockhouse beside which I'm standing. They took it with some dispatch and moved down across the town killing and capturing as they went. Within a very short time, the town of Wiestrom had fallen to the Allies. Below on the other beaches, other men, including many thousands of Irish, were landing, some facing fierce resistance. But the real charnel house was down in Omaha and Utah, where the Americans were slaughtered by the thousand.
What was the noise like? Was there firing? Was there... Total. And, and unfortunately, we had an officer with us who was in charge of this, our boat, you know. And he was a bit of a, a, bit of a, a guy that was... Uh, I think he was more afraid than us all. Don't put your head up. Don't be standing up. Walk by there. Keep down there. And we were... <laughs> had us all worked up. Where, we were, where were the huge warships at this stage? They were at the back. They were at the back. You know, as in as near as they could so come. They're firing over the top over of the top, you. Oh, they had to. So the big guns are the likes of the Rodney and so on. Yeah. Throwing shells the size of rowing boats. Absolutely. That's over your heads towards you, you the beaches. Could, Derek, you could nearly, as I told you, when you heard them firing, you know, you heard the big flash, and you instinctively looked, and you could see the shadow of them going over. I mean, they, you know, you, could, you knew the shell was... They must have been huge things. You could feel nearly the wind of it, and, the, and then the, the sound of the gun would come at you then, the big guns, and they were firing in salvo. They were softening up all around. As you know, they were trying to soften up around Cannes. They were hoping to, hope to get Cannes the first day, which they didn't, as you know. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, then, you were expecting stuff to come at you from this side as well, which, fortunately, it, it was pinging all right, but there was nothing. We, we heard a few pings around the side and that. But to be afraid of your life, you were taking glimpses and glances and wondering when, you were, when they were going to open this thing in front of you. <laughs> How long did it take to get to the beach? Well, we, we were, we were manoeuvring around, seemed to be messing. Do you know what I mean? We were saying, why don't you put us in there? Was no, had the beach had to, you had to get clearance if you were non-combatant. You know, and um, so eventually we got in about uh, I think it was the second tour day, the second the morning of the tour morning. So we, we were on board at night and all, which was ridiculous. You know what I mean? You were and you're hearing all this going. However, it, that that seems to be to me uh, that we were on a, such a high. You know what I mean? That um, I can only remember bits and pieces of it. If you understand me, do you know what I mean? The whole feeling like was just to get in and get off this thing. I'm wondering where we're going to get off it without because we were fully expecting to meet that the enemy would be there, still firing at us. Were, were all the dead and wounded cleared by the time? Oh, no, no way, because there were, around you could see them floating on the waters even. You know, a lot of the guys who... What was happening with a lot of the boats, we could see them, some of the big, the smaller ones, the LSI and the LSEs, the uh, infantry and that. They were hitting banks, do you know what I mean? And instead of, when they dropped their thing then, the guys had run off or the, whatever it was on. And they were going into about 20 feet of water because there was still, still a bit to go, you know what I mean, in... Sixty-five pounds on the back. Oh, they go the, the down, down like a stone. Yeah, I remember. I remember going down down to the beaches uh, about a, less than a week after that. I was scruffy. I needed a bath. I needed a shower, and there was no water, and all. And everything was a mess up where I was going around. And I went down to see it. You couldn't. You wouldn't put your foot in the water. And that was about a week after. You know, there was Why? stuff floating in. Blood. Blood and butts of bodies and. It's it's uh, when you tell people that now they're agog, but you must remember there were hundreds le- lost in the water. Do you know Thousands what I mean? Even. Thousands and and sunk and it, you know it normally takes about nine days for a body to come up, but with all that stuff on them, you know, yes. they were loaded. The paratroopers and any of those. People. How did that affect you emotionally? Did did the tragedy of those losses did that hit you at the time? It did. I tell you. What happened with, with in my individual cases, um, you you were you expected that. You know what I mean. You expected there was going to be bodies and that, and you're wondering what your reaction was going to be. Were you going to be a coward, or would you? You know, this was the feeling. How am I going to react to all this? Uh, but I'd already seen a bit of it through the crashes in England. You know, I'd seen a, a few bad crashes and fellas, you know, that sort of thing, and and helped excavate them and all that sort of thing. But the so, sheer scale of that that, that was, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the, 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 the bedlam, because when you landed then, they were still undecided. You see, uh, where I landed on sword, 
uh, there was um, what do you call these um, embankments and all around. So they were they were after bulldozing ways through them. You see, so there were little flags, and you were, the guy was telling you follow that little green flag just to get so you wouldn't be mixed up. So there was fellas getting stuck, and there was a lot of stuff was still being smouldering on the beach, and it was carnage, like you know, and 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 so uh, the whole thing was a bit of a lure. Let's get out of here fast. We moved too fast, actually. We moved. We got on, and they sent us up a laneway in a roadway, and they said, keep going there, you'll hit the bridge eventually, blah, blah, blah. So eventually, we were held up with tanks and all this them because we were piling up then, and we ended up in a small laneway, and we shouldn't have stayed there at all, because when the tanks, you see, at that I only discovered afterwards, if you're near tanks at all, that's where the enemy shell, mm-hmm. because they see the dust, the dust sure. comes up, and they're, they're not too far, they're only three or four miles away at that stage. So we ended up in this laneway, and we said, we'll have to stay here till the morning, it's got dark. And I was up again a tree, a big tree, trying to have a sleep. And we parked the little truck down here, and my bike was over there. And then they started shelling. You know, these mini, mini, mini moaners. Oh, the sound of them! You'd hear them screaming. And and this was our first time under shell fire. And I remember my main concern was my bike. <laughs> and I was remember saying to the lads around the tree, "The bloody bike! If that's hit, I'm finished." Because it was, I'd, I'd left it up there by the ditch. And I crawled along on my hands and knees and pushed it down to the ditch, you know? And they said to me, you bloody idiot, you know what I mean? When I went back, there was two of them gone. The shell had come around the back of the tree. Captain Michael Previte, family home at that time, Drimkong House, County Galway, was a Royal Marines officer, charged with getting his men, some of the British Army's crack troops, onto the beach. Captain Previte was by then 28, married to a Galway woman and the father of a son. There were two flotillas, two landing craft flotillas on board. And um, the captain, Poole, had one flotilla and I had the other. And we both landed at the same time. Well, I led the, I led the landings on Gold Beach with my flotilla. And what were your instructions or objectives uh, upon landing? What were your orders? My orders were to go back to the ship and pick up some more troops... Which we did. Effectively to act as ferryman. More or less, but we had to go ashore. Um, there were stakes on the shore with explosives on the top of the stakes, but we landed, you see, at um, on a rising tide. Yes. At low tide, but at a rising tide. So the, the, the stakes, the top of the stakes were well above the boat, and then we had to get out and push the boat off. I'm told that on some of the beaches, particularly the American beaches, there was a delay with the result that they they hit those underwater entanglements, the mines, the obstacles. Very likely. And yeah. they got enmeshed with them. That's probably what happened. Mind you, they, they had bigger boats than we had. They had different shaped boats. And Ours were different kinds of landing craft to the Americans. I'm told that some of the boats ran aground while they were still in maybe 20 feet of water because they hit sandbanks and men were lost because they jumped out with these heavy packs on into maybe 15 or 20 feet. I I was lucky because um, there was no hindrance like that at Gold Beach nor at Swords. And those are the only two that I really know anything about. What kind of opposition did you encounter as you came in? Nothing. Not that I know of. I didn't see any. The only thing that was these, these stakes on the shore 
with these explosives on the top. We didn't know anything about them. But the opposition came when we were going out, when the boats were going, were going back to the ship. We were, we were fired on them. It was awful. I was here home with my parents, and I felt dreadful all day, and I was following our gardener around, whom I was very fond of, who said, what is the matter with you? I said, I don't know. And a certain time that evening, it lifted, and he was back after they'd been mined. Safe and sound. Safe and sound. I never thought he'd, anything would happen to him. But something... But it was terribly anxious and lonely. You knew, of course, that during the previous four years or so, the British Army had suffered appalling losses. Oh, dreadful, so. dreadful. But it never crossed your mind? No. I had a conviction that he was going to come through. But it didn't alter my anxiety. I still felt that. Especially when he... he well, D-Day, of course, I knew what was happening, because... Well, he disappeared after emergency leave, wasn't it? You had you had special leave before, and I thought, well, this must be it now. Of course, we were all sworn to silence, complete silence. You couldn't say anything to anybody. <laughs> it was tricky. Do you and Michael ever reminisce about those days, those war years? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We had such fun, yeah. you know. <laughs> you had to. Everybody was wonderful. They were all so cheerful and welcoming in our time on Hailing Island when I got seen off the beach watching an air raid um, it was marvellous and the, 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 the Navy were there and we shared a, fl a flat with another Royal Marine couple and there were parties in between all these horrors we watched Portsmouth burning which was dreadful dreadful flying at about 250 miles an hour straight in towards France. Spitfires on the left and behind us. And somewhere with us, one other mosquito, gone out of sight at the moment, who's flying with us as another extra machine with the formation. Well, for years, I've been used to describing things, but I find it difficult to tell you just how this looks. In front of the great mass of shipping, there's the great pattern of France, cratered and re-cratered where our bombs have fallen in the past. Here is the new landing strip, lying out, looking for all the world, like a, an old established and magnificently prepared aerodrome. We're diving down and coming in over it right now, flying straight over the top. And there, in the distance, and all round us, in a great semicircle, is the battlefront. I can see the whole of it from east to west. Fires are burning in every direction. There's smoke going up in clouds. We've seen the guns firing and the ships firing inshore. And we're flying so low now, but I can see individual people on the ground. There are anti-aircraft guns. There are some cows sitting in a field. I'm describing them all as they go past the port side window of this mosquito cockpit. More guns. And there are transport on the roads. And at that road junction just below us, there's a military policeman waving them on. You know, I can even see his red cap from here, but he's wearing that and not his thin hat. 
The roads are full of our Tom, did, did you have to kill anybody during your campaign? Do you well, I've been asked this before, and I, I, I don't like talking about it, but since you've asked the question again, I, I will answer you this way. There was one, just one I, I remember, one outstanding feature was the two Germans came out from a wooded area with the hands in the air and a, a white cloth, which I just happened to notice, at say the last minute, there was a grenade under it. So I put him on grenade away. Did it make you closer to God? Did you become religious? Oh, God, yes. Oh, God, I have to admit that that's why I had my rosary beads in my hand. In one hand, my rifle, another. And the, and the bayonet fixed as well. Oh, the bayonet fixed as well. They had to have the bayonet fixed, yes. There were, if I just mentioned, there were two chaps killed within a, a stone's throw of me. You were told, ordered... In that trench, stay in that trench, do all you had to do with it. Drop your pants if necessary. But these two, for whatever reason, I'll never know, were out of the trench. And the sniper got to tell them. That was it. That was it. It was a lesson well learned. Did you eventually get the sniper? No. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah. Uh, we discovered that he was strapped to a tree overlooking our position. Yes. And it was a funny thing that every time the wind would blow, he'd go with it. And you'd shoot it straight away, but you, you wouldn't hesitate. You'd let shoot first straight away without thinking. You, well, you wouldn't do, didn't do it too often. Like you caught on yourself. Isn't that stupid? In this corner of the Bayou Commonwealth War Cemetery, you can hear birdsong, the sound of a motor moor, carefully tending some 4,000 or more graves. And we're standing beside a line that begins with R.H. McQuillan, the Royal Ulster Rifles Airborne, who died on the 7th of June, the day after D-Day in 1944, aged 21. There are other inscriptions in proud and ever-loving memory of a very gallant soldier Irene and children. And Colonel Chilcott, a row of Irish names. Do you have any feeling as a military historian and as somebody with a committed interest to this, do you have any feeling about the way in which those Irish heroes have been ignored by Ireland? Yeah, I do. I think it's grossly unfair. Um, uh, we, we all know about... Uh, because I'm Anglo-Irish myself and I was brought up in an Irish family and, and I know a lot of the feelings that went backwards and forwards. Um, but uh, these chaps went off and fought in a crusade, effectively. And this crusade is unacknowledged because of prejudice and all that sort of thing. And I think it's quite wrong because uh, they did their stuff along with everybody else. I spoke to one veteran some years ago and I asked him about this moral ambivalence uh, and he said to me, young man, when you've seen children hanged from lampposts, let me assure you there is no moral ambivalence. No, quite. No, I can, I can see that. Yeah. Or if you've seen people... Uh, you, my father, for instance, was one of the first people into Belgian concentration camp.
there were some very beautiful people and brave men and honourable men and to think that there, you know, there was absolutely no recognition really for them in that sense well I agreed that they're getting around to it now I go to the one every year up in Kilmainham you know for all the Irish who are dead that's a good at least they're there and uh, it's, it's sort of happening I find now I, I'm a school teacher and I've been lecturing in the college I do a bit of lecturing in the colleges and I find now that I can bring it up discreetly and they're very interested, the younger people. They want to hear a bit of the history. They want to hear why or what or what. Where before it was in for a dig, you know what I mean? You just weren't supposed to do that. But now, and I've, I've had requests from various groups of people will I talk to them about it. They want to know. Sixty years ago, Sean Deegan was part of a mighty war machine dedicated, albeit, to the liberation of Europe. And now, 60 years later, you're a Franciscan friar, as I say, still in uniform. Do you still serve those men, those fallen men, and those former comrades, at least in the sight of God, do you think? I think so. I think uh, I'm in the unique position. I probably only one became a friar of all of them. And I'm the, in the unique position that I'm, um, I'm one of God's... Uh, uh, what would you call it, disciples, if you like to put it. Like, I mean, I'm in his little, little clan, I'm in his army, uh, maybe closer than the average guy because I've dedicated my life to it. And I firmly believe that I uh, have been given that privilege, that honour, to represent the Irish people, the Irish war dead, the forgotten heroes. And I, and I have no hesitation now in speaking out now, publicly or anyone. I don't care what sort of flack I get. Uh, that is my crusade at the moment to try and perpetuate them. I know I haven't much longer to live and they're probably, I'd hate them, I'd hate it just to die out uh, history, to be airbrushed out of history like that. I really would. I think knowing them, I can become very emotional about it. Men like Andre Eintz, the resistance leader, speak passionately in admiration of those Irish men who volunteered. Because they were unique. They were volunteers, Derek. Do you know what I mean? They weren't just being pushed into it. They were volu- Today, Europe celebrates its unity and democracy, and the fallen of both sides are acknowledged by their governments. Young men, on whose graves was built the freedom that we enjoy. A victorious Germany would have turned Ireland into a huge collective farm, its citizens, slaves of the Reich. And yet Ireland chooses to ignore the 165,000 of its citizens who went to war and the many thousands who never came home. The Europe, of whose presidency we have been so proud, was built with Irish bones too. Ignored here, perhaps, but remembered elsewhere. Well, I was going to say, nobody can forget them here. And uh, there's a village near that cemetery you were talking about, where we have the those Irish soldiers buried there on the 7th of June, and... Uh, the 8th of July and uh, in Caen it's all the time that you think of that time and uh, we, we can't forget all those people and we keep an immense gratitude to the uh, for, for those men that were volunteers as you say and all the others and we were so shocked at the time when uh, it seems that the Americans despised us fairly recently because we didn't we were not in favor of joining them as if we were cowards now we kept the same feeling and the same great immense gratitude as i said for all those heroes andre ice merci 
Non, c'est vrai. Le can forget. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.